From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's new state historian wants to engage children to understand the past and how it informs the present in a way that ensures inclusivity and representation. Those histories that are not part of the traditional dominant narrative that many of us got in fourth grade. Nikki Gonzalez wants people to embrace curiosity about one another's experiences. Then COVID-19 vaccines have been available for months. What's persuading folks getting their shots now to finally go for it? I actually went to the dentist's office and they asked me if I was vaccinated and I told them that I wasn't. So it kind of made me feel bad. Plus, simultaneously inspiring and terrifying. That's how a CU professor describes the traffic and trash in space right now. Donate your car to Colorado Public Radio today. Any make, any model, we'll take it. If it's a lemon, we'll turn it into lemonade. If it's taking up space, we'll get it off your lawn. If it's a car you love, we'll turn it into the programs you love. Find answers to FAQs and start the safe and easy car donation process right now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The new state historian wants kids to know their families' stories. That way, they can understand what forces shape the present and embrace differences. Nikki Gonzalez begins her one-year term as historian this coming Sunday, August 1st. That's Colorado Day the day Colorado became a state in 1876. Gonzalez is a professor of history and vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University. She's also a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council, and now the first Latina to be named Colorado's state historian. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Avery. I'm happy to be here. Your expertise is in Chicano history and social and political movements in the Southwest. Chicano history and the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s obviously have deep roots in Colorado. How do you want to spotlight that history as state historian? Yes, I think a lot of my work has already helped spotlight that with History Colorado. So I would just like to be able to insert those narratives into a larger history of Colorado during the 60s and 70s and to make sure that our picture of Colorado during that time period is inclusive of of everybody's history. And the ways that we talk about history, the ways we present it and absorb it, they're also different. What are some ways that you want to make sure that that narrative is present? Sure. So a couple of the initiatives that are already going on is um, like renaming assets in Denver, for example, um, with the mayor's advisory group. And also at the governor's level, at the state level, the governor's um, council on renaming geographic locations, landmarks in the state. And so on the physical landscape, that's that's one way to create a more inclusive narrative. Um, Also through, uh, I have a couple of, I guess, goals or ideas for initiatives, which would be to engage the youth. And my goal, my wish is to create opportunities for youth to engage with their elders um, in the community and in their families to explore, yes, one, one, the family history, but also the history of the Chicano community. And to, you know, if you start with the youth, then it turns into, you know, much more than that. Tell me about some of those ideas for those opportunities with youth, because I love that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, 
um, I'll tell you a little bit about my background in that area. So when I was in graduate school at CU Boulder, I was able to work with a program called Project Listo at North High School, which was for rising ninth graders. And so the keystone project of that program was to get these ninth graders to write family histories. And they did all sorts of um genealogical research. They also did a lot of oral histories with their elders. And what I saw with them was just how that knowledge of their their own history um, empowered them. And so, and it became actually a retention tool um, for those students when they reached reached high school. And also, I, I would like to create opportunities through some of the technology that exists at this time. There's an app called Storyvine, which is a way to encourage engagement across generations and to be able to record those histories, video record those histories, and then upload them to an app and then share them out. So hopefully with that. And then History Colorado already has a great program called History Buffs, which is for fourth graders, and it offers free memberships to to fourth graders across the state. So hoping to capitalize upon what already exists and maybe try some new things. And when you're looking at those intergenerational conversations, tell me a little bit more about what's at stake there, specifically for people who come from marginalized backgrounds grounds where maybe they haven't heard family stories because an older generation felt some shame or they were made to feel less than because of those backgrounds. Tell me about what's at stake in preserving those stories. Sure. So what's at stake is if they're not preserved and because so much of that has not been written down or recorded in any way, they'll be lost. So with the passing of each generation, we lose more of that history. And so by encouraging that intergenerational conversation, we strive to to preserve those stories um, for future generations. And would you tell me about a person or an event, putting you on the spot here a little bit, but who you feel like is overlooked when people talk about Chicano history in Colorado? A lot of my research is in the San Luis Valley, and I've studied the history of the San Luis community really from the the beginning of, well, I gave a little background. So I've looked at the, the Sangre de Cristo land grant, which was a Mexican-era land grant, um, which was issued in 1843. And it gave very unique communal rights to a large landscape, a large mountainous landscape. And so my research has been in tracing that community's struggle to hang on or to win back those historic land rights that time and again were challenged or taken away um, at a couple times in history and what that community did to win those rights back in 2002 at the Colorado State Supreme Court level. And still, it's still in like the appeals courts and so forth. And so there are three individuals actually, Shirley Romero Otero, Ray Otero, and Apolinar Rael, who I I met two of them throughout my research, and then Apollinar, I, I uncovered so many of his stories through his descendants and through letters he had written. He was a prolific letter writer. And those three are really good examples of three individuals in the Chicano community who people really haven't heard of. You know, now, so Shirley's more, you know, more people know about her story, but... These leaders were, I would say, on par with people like Reyes Tijerina, um, who led the land grant movement in New Mexico. So there are th- these hidden gems. So those three in particular come to mind. So you're the first Latina state historian 
You've said that it's important for you to prioritize non-Eurocentric history. What does that look like? Sure. So those are the histories of indigenous peoples. Those are the histories of Latino communities. Those are the histories of African-American and Asian-American Pacific Islander communities, of the LGBT community in Colorado's history. So those histories that are not part of the traditional dominant narrative that many of us got in fourth grade. And one of those that you're raising public awareness about is the Sand Creek Massacre. Mm -hmm. In 1864, U.S. Union soldiers attacked a village of Cheyenne and Arapaho people, killed hundreds and forced the survivors to flee. Why is this an event that you wanted to focus on? Well, it's an event that in teaching college history that I would say about 5% of my students knew about. Wow. And I think it's really important. It's like a window into that period of American policy toward indigenous peoples where, you know, we say one thing and we we do something else, this very duplicitous approach to indigenous people. And really this policy of, of genocide that was supported by, by the U.S. government during that time. And so, and it's in our backyard. And I think that uh, it's been fascinating to watch the conversations between the indigenous, the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations and History Colorado as they work out what the representation of that historical moment will be. So I also think that process itself is also instructive in how to tell these stories and whose voices to center. How do your students respond after they've learned about the massacre? Oh, wow. They they respond with disbelief. And that goes for a number of, of incidents in, in our history. But disbelief and a little bit of anger as to why they weren't taught that history and curiosity about what other what other events or um, massacres might they not know about. And I don't have to tell you these histories don't stop mattering just because there's been time. Tell me a little bit more about why it's so important to bring these histories into the present consciousness. Absolutely. So I've often said, and I, I believe very deeply, that we cannot understand who we are and where we are today until we've examined and really understand our history and each other's history. I mean, our collective history, which is all of those stories together, because I think you know, history grounds us. It gives us context. It provides an understanding of where we all come from. I mean, essentially, we're all like these walking historical narratives that carry, at least in the the words of James Baldwin, we carry our histories with us. And if we don't arrive at an understanding, we will never have the, I guess, the tools or the ability to have the kinds of conversations that we need to have to create a more inclusive society. And some of those conversations you're having, you're participating in roundtable discussions about the Capitol insurrection with other historians. Tell me a little bit more about those discussions. Why were you having them? We were having them because we, you know, in our conversations, we were all getting these questions. It's like, you know, this moment in history is kind of like the historian's moment. And we were all fielding these questions from people, you know, our family members, our friends, our community members about you know, how did we get here? Like, what what's going on? Like, how did we get to the point where a group of people overruns the U.S. Capitol? And so I think, you know, as historians, we have the tools and the knowledge to help ground us and to, to give context. Like, this is how we got here. And there are examples in history. I don't believe history repeats itself, but it certainly instructs us and informs us in ways that are helpful to deal with our current moment. So in some ways, y'all are the keeper of context. Absolutely. A lot of topics that you want to bring voice to can be emotionally fraught. They can also be complicated for Mm -hmm. people. How do you navigate that? Mm. 
Well, um, I always work with my students, and this also with my um, in my position as vice provost at Regis University, talking about very difficult topics like race, gender, class differences, and so forth, and have emphasized some, I guess, ground rules, you know, some collective norms around those conversations, and encourage people to lead with curiosity. Okay, to try to leave our defensiveness. And we all we all get defensive over certain things, but to try to minimize that as much as possible and to really lead with a curiosity about one another's experiences. So that that's probably my number one. You've also spent a lot of time helping students discover their own family histories like we were talking about. Tell me a little bit more about why it's important for you, for young people to explore their family's histories. Absolutely. I think young people, especially in a time of social media, are really always searching for an identity. And sometimes that, you know, through social media and so and peer pressure and so forth, you can, you know, be led down certain paths that aren't, aren't always really good for you. And I believe that exploring one's own historical roots and, and stories and struggles and triumphs and so forth really helps to ground kids in a narrative that is empowering and maybe would give them strength in the most difficult moments to look back and say, oh, my great grandmother, she worked the fields in Erie, you know, and she raised four kids or nine kids by herself and she made it. So maybe I can get through this moment that I'm going through. Has exploring history and making a career out of it, has that been personally grounding for you? Oh, absolutely. I would say that I've, I've always been interested in history since I was a little girl. I've always gravitated towards stories about, you know, individuals in American history. I remember this this series of books at my grade school, which was American Indian leaders. I think it was called Warriors. And people like Geronimo and Crazy Horse and um, Sitting Bull. And, you know, I was just transported to the 19th century American West in ways that I didn't even understand at the time. But I was fascinated. I was hooked from an early age. And then as I got older... I went on that search for my own roots because I felt like there was something there, but it was not something that family members were always willing to talk to me about. And it was later on that I understood why. And it was a history that was sometimes very painful. Um, it was a history of, of racism, discrimination. And sometimes I think parents tend to want to protect their, their kids from certain things, especially things that are as painful as, as racism. So it was encouraged to, you know, just keep moving forward without looking back too much. But it, for me, it has been very empowering. And I often joke that I, I, I went to college at Yale University, so I had to go east to truly study the West. And it was really two courses in the American West um, under, the, under Professor Howard Lamar that hooked me on history of the West. And it's the first time that in an academic setting that I actually learned history that was relevant to my own family's background. And is that how you came to make a career as a historian? That, yes, that was a building block for sure. And then just talking with mentors and uh, Dr. Maria Montoya was a, a men an early mentor and an, an inspiration. And to realize that, oh, I could actually make a living doing this. You know, I'm not going to get rich, <laughs> but, but um, I could certainly live a very satisfying life and um, do what, what I thought was important in life. And, and it's always been important for me to use whatever work I'm doing, whatever opportunity I have to, to work for social justice and to help create a more equitable society. And history is, history is a vehicle to do all of that. And I hope that this isn't prying too much, but having studied these histories and made a life work of telling these histories when your family had sometimes avoided talking about them with you, how has that been? 
Um, it's been, I think, you know, sometimes I think I'm a little weird. <laughs> um, it, but it's been, you know, as time has gone on, I think my family has taken more pride in, in our history as well. Um, you know, and it, it's kind of moved along with society. And there's there's no there's no shame about where we come from. In fact, there's been pride in my family. And so that has been very rewarding along the way. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your work and your vision for your role as state historian. Oh, thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much. Nikki Gonzalez is a professor of history and vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University. She's also a member of History Colorado's State Historians Council. She's the first Latina to be named Colorado's state historian. Her one-year term begins on Sunday. Even though vaccines have been widely available for months, some Coloradans haven't yet gotten themselves protected from COVID-19. Mobile clinics around the state are trying to reach some of those people. My colleague Rebecca Spies from Denverite went to one in Aurora on Friday to hear about why people finally decided to get vaccinated. Rebecca is here with me now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Of the people that you met at the clinic, what changed their minds? Why were they getting vaccinated now? People had a variety of reasons for choosing to get the vaccine now as opposed to sooner. Some people were there for the new $100 Walmart gift cards. Some people were there for ease of access. And some people said they were bullied by their friends or just peer pressured in general. Oh, interesting. These Walmart gift cards, they're available at state's mobile vaccine clinics. They're $100 each. Yeah, but beyond all those things, the person who stuck with me the most is this young woman named Cynthia Martyr. She's 13, and she was at the vaccine clinic despite the fact that her mom doesn't support the vaccine at all. Was her mom there? No, she was with her grandma, and she's one of those teens who we've heard about a little nationally who are essentially petitioning their parents to be able to go get a vaccine. been fighting with my mom to get my vaccination for over two months. I've been watching the news with my grandmother, which came from San Diego to visit us. And I've been watching the news, educating myself, seeing how many cases have gone up day by day. It's scary and I'm scared to lose my life and end up in the hospital and not see my family again. So today I thought I would step up to the plate and tell my mom how I felt and get the vaccination today. Wow, that sounds like it must have been tough to take on her mom like that. She said it was. It was very scary because I didn't know what she was going to say, and I didn't know what was going to happen between me and her. So that was mostly scary between if we were going to continue arguing about it. And it's very scary. I don't want to lose a relationship with my mom over this. But she won the argument and was at the clinic with her grandma, who I also talked to and who was really supportive. Did they say why Cynthia's mom didn't want her to get the vaccine? Yes, this is how she described the challenge. She believes that it's apart some other dimension about the government trying to destroy the world and all that. And I don't think that's true because the government's just trying to help us and get us to where we're safer and more people won't die. She said she tried again in the car that morning, this was on Friday, to convince her mom to come, but she wouldn't do it. She didn't want to come here today because of what she believes in and she Thing, she thought I did something wrong, so I don't really feel like she, I did something wrong. I did something right to make the world a better place and help people that 
are getting, deciding to get the vaccination. Did Cynthia say her grandmother had come from San Diego and took her to the clinic? Yes. Uh, her grandma, Sharon Carter, is here for a few months, and she was really proud of Cynthia. She took a stand, and she's like, Mom, I want to live. I'm going to go get vaccinated today with Grandma. And that's why she's here. That takes a lot of guts for a 13-year-old. Did she say anything else about why she showed up at the clinic? Yeah, she said her friends helped a lot. Yes, all my friends encouraged me to get vaccinated. That's what encouraged me mostly to show my mom that I want to get vaccinated. And my friends were the ones that helped me out to try win the argument and the fight with my mom to get the vaccination today. Okay, so that was 13-year-old Cynthia Martyr, who you met at the Mobile Vaccination Clinic in Aurora. Who else did you meet there, and what did you learn about what's driving people to get vaccines now after they've been widely available for months? Um, Someone else I want to tell you about is Jordan Thompson. He said it was actually his dentist who convinced him that it was time. I actually went to the dentist's office, and they asked me if I was vaccinated, and I told them that I wasn't, so... It kind of made me feel bad, and we started talking about vaccines and which one to get. And so after that, I, I went ahead and, and saw this bus and outside the gym, and I was like, I have to get it now. And so, yeah, I got my first vaccine a couple weeks ago, and now I'm getting my second. He also said that part of the reason he got it was that it was so easy. He could do it at his convenience, so access is definitely part of it. For other people, seeing more evidence of what the vaccines and COVID-19 are doing in society is slowly changing their minds. What sorts of things are people seeing or are they being affected specifically by COVID-19? I talked to one woman, Dee Jennings, who said she's had unvaccinated family members get very ill. Also, she has some work travel coming up and knowing that she'll be spending time in big crowds again, she decided that it was her time to get the vaccine. Uh, I also met a family, the mother is on disability, and she has a lot of health issues, including heart problems and asthma. She was nervous to get the vaccine, but also figured it was her best protection. Her kids, who are both teenagers, came out just because she asked them to. And they also figured that eventually they'd be required. What was your big takeaway from going out and talking to people about these decisions to get vaccinated? I thought it was pretty fascinating to see the different reasons that people haven't gotten vaccinated. They're pretty complex, and there's a lot of them. I also met another 13-year-old who traveled all the way from Mexico to get it. She was staying with her aunt, and the vaccine isn't available in Mexico for people under 18 yet. Oh, wow. I mean, I feel like there is a lot of frustration if somebody's gotten a vaccine early on, but other people just haven't gotten it. What was kind of your sense about how seriously people are taking it when they're getting vaccinated now? No one I talked to had trivialized COVID. It wasn't as if they didn't care. I feel like getting frustrated with people who haven't gotten vaccinated isn't going to help get them to the clinic anyway. Rebecca, thank you for those insights. A look at the vaccine numbers across the state shows they haven't gone up with the new gift card offers or the proliferation of the mobile clinics. But it's very difficult to say how much they could have actually fallen without that increased access and incentive. Right now in Colorado, up to about 9,000 people a day are getting vaccinated. In April, it was about 70,000 people a day. The Walmart gift cards are available at the state mobile vaccine sites while supplies last. Meanwhile, unvaccinated people are driving an increase in COVID cases across the state. More than 2 million people in Colorado have not gotten even a first dose of the vaccine. When we come back, it's one thing to think about trash piling up here on Earth, 
But what about the stuff that's in orbit? The problem, the threat it poses, and some solutions after the break. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Mount Evans Highway, the highest paved road in North America, almost 100 years old, and it's hurt the delicate tundra around it. People come up here for the ecosystems. People come up here for the flowers. So if we start eliminating species from this landscape, the flower show is going to start to get less interesting for us. A new report recommends tearing out the existing road and building a new one. Fixing the Mount Evans Highway. Hear the story and see pictures at CPR.org. Simultaneously inspiring and terrifying. That's how CU professor Marcus Holzinger describes the traffic and trash in space right now. He testified last week at the first Space and Science Subcommittee chaired by Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper, who opened the hearing with this. We have numerous examples of collisions in space, some of which have been catastrophic. 2007, Chinese A Chinese weapons demonstration left over 3,000 debris objects moving through space at high speeds. 2009, U.S. satellite collision with Russian satellite uh, created 1,800 debris objects, at least. Uh, And since 1999, International Space Station conducted 29 debris avoidance uh, maneuvers. Uh, And there were three in 2020 alone. Uh, But but certainly, I think, and you all understand this, we can't wait for the next collision to occur before taking action. Marcus Holzinger, welcome to Colorado Matters. It's lovely to be here. The traffic in space is not just NASA. Now it's GPS satellites, billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. More traffic creates more debris. Senator John Hickenlooper touched on this, but in your own words, what is the risk here? Uh, the, The risk is that We have too much debris up on orbit, and it makes it unusable uh, for future missions or future commercial ventures. The orbits, just the space in space. That's that's right. So the the volume of space, you know, just around the Earth in particular, but also around the geosynchronous belt, that that belt that has a lot of our direct TV and other satellites. And so I know that Senator Hickenlooper mentioned the risk to the International Space Station that it's been conducting debris maneuver or avoidance maneuvers. What's the risk to non-human spacecraft like GPS satellite? So uh, most satellites uh, in Earth orbit uh, are in low Earth orbit. And, and again, a fair number of them are also uh, in geosynchronous orbit. The risk is collision, right, with other debris or other active spacecraft. Uh, and in terms of collision, um, you know, we, we, we don't really have a great uh, intuition here on the ground for what those collisions look like. So let me paint a picture for you. Those collisions happen at very high speeds. And when I say very high, I'm talking about, you know, several miles per second, four or five miles per second. And just about anything when it hits something else at uh, that speed is going to cause catastrophic damage. So even small things like paint chips or bits of foil or mylar. Uh, can be catastrophic in those situations. And that is really uh, at the heart of the challenge. Um, you know, we can, our current space surveillance network really tracks objects that are several centimeters and larger, uh, but even small debris that we can't track are uh, posing a danger to both unmanned and uh, uh, human spaceflight. And for those GPS satellites, I mean, we rely on those for so many things here on Earth for navigation and the list goes on. What is debris and how big is it? It's a great question. So 
debris uh, in general are pieces of old spacecraft or rocket bodies that have broken off uh, either through collisions with other debris or just through uh, wear and tear of the space objects uh, over time. Uh, and you might imagine, you know, as those space objects, um, you know, shed debris or are uh, impacted and create debris clouds, um, you know, the, the distribution, the different sizes of debris can vary dramatically, right? So you have debris that is, uh, you know, as large as launch vehicle upper stages that are, you know, you can imagine the size of a, of a yellow school bus. That's about how big a, an upper stage of a launch vehicle is. Um, all the way down to flecks of paint and uh, nuts and bolts, uh, you know, in terms of the distribution. And the way the distribution works is um, the number of objects that are very, very small greatly exceeds the number of objects that are very large, uh, which maybe makes some intuitive sense. So there are many more objects up there, some tens or hundreds of millions of objects that we can't track, that are too small for us to track from a technical perspective. Uh, as, as compared to the larger objects that we can track. But they can still make a problem. Like you said, even paint chips can be problematic. We think of space as being so big, but you mentioned that even the area around Earth can get clogged. How much debris is out there? So the uh, Space Force currently tracks 27,000 objects up on orbit. And that doesn't sound like quite a lot, but remember that they're not evenly distributed in space. Many of them are in uh, very, very similar orbits. And so they have a large number of close approaches to each other uh, you know, on an annual basis. I think there are several uh, daily conjunction messages sent to active uh, operators of, space object, uh, of spacecraft. Um, in terms of you know, the, the density of debris that we can't track, that's largely in the same orbits. So that's, that's where fundamentally the risk is posed, is in debris on spacecraft interactions. So let's talk about what you can do about any of this. The purpose of the Hickenlooper subcommittee was to explore ways to manage space junk. What's the first rule you'd like to see put in place? The first rule I'd like to see put in place has to do with setting norms of behavior uh, and rules of the road for that domain. Um, this is something that certainly the United States should lead uh, but there should also be a heavy level of international cooperation and engagement from companies that are uh, launching spacecraft into space. Uh, you might imagine that uh, if there is not consensus amongst the inter international community and amongst satellite operators on what the rules of the road and norms of behavior are in terms of deorbiting spacecraft on time or having propulsive capability, um, then you know there is no incentive for anyone to be a good actor in that area. So there needs to be consensus that everybody can directly see uh, is in their best interest. So what kind of that, rules are we talking here? Like for stopping litter? Uh, for Yeah, so for uh, for stopping litter uh, in the sense of, you know, when, you're, when you have a spacecraft, it's been up there for a couple of years and it's nearing the end of its life, how do you dispose of that spacecraft? Uh, do you just turn it off and let it drift up there for some number of years or do you, have some sort of a deorbit mechanism to uh, bring it down from orbit over a shorter timeline. There are a number of options, uh, and there needs to be international consensus and norms of behavior on exactly how to do that. And we might also consider, uh, you know, ways to have perhaps different guidelines for different types of orbits. Different orbits are, are sometimes more, uh, you know, densely populated by spacecraft or more valuable from an economics perspective. Uh, and it might make sense to have different rules for different volumes of space. 
these decommissioned aircrafts floating in space is sort of make me think of abandoned oil wells. Those are a problem here in Colorado. I imagine that it can be hard to get companies to take responsibility for old satellites once they're no longer viable right now. It, it may be, but I think, uh, you know, a rational argument that populating that volume of space too heavily with debris makes it impossible to operate commercially in that area in the future uh, should make a lot of sense to, to most companies. And frankly, most of the companies I've spoken to or had interactions with recognize the need and in fact have called for some level of reform or, or rulemaking on that front. Another option is different orbits can be reserved for different purposes, kind of like lanes on a highway. And there are trash lanes. How do those work? That's a great question. So what you're probably referencing is what's called the graveyard orbit. Uh, and that's an orbit that is uh, or a set of orbits, rather, that are above the geosynchronous belt. And just for the for the listeners, a geosynchronous orbit is an orbit that um, goes around the Earth exactly once a day. So if you might imagine the Earth rotating underneath, a geosynchronous orbit is special because that spacecraft sort of stays in the same spot in the sky above us throughout the day. Uh, and that's every day, you know, all year long. So uh, there's an orbit above that uh, that currently we, we take satellites that we're about to decommission, and we place them in that orbit before we decommission them so they don't interact with those really valuable economic uh, assets of, the, of, those, uh, of those orbit slots, what they're called. So those, those orbit slots are assigned to individual spacecraft or, or small groups of spacecraft, and at the end of their life, they decommission and go into these graveyard orbits. So tell me a little bit about how that plays into this idea of right-of-way and what right-of-way means. That's a great question. So right now, uh, up in geosynchronous orbit, right-of-way means staying inside of your box. And other uh, actors, other spacecraft operators, are not allowed to go into your orbit slot. Uh, and so you have that orbit slot to yourself, and that's how we currently maintain safety of operations uh, up in the geosynchronous uh, orbit belt. And do private space companies want these rules? Yes. Uh, you might think of these orbit slots or orbit uh, volumes in a way that you know we uh, currently understand real estate, right? So if you want to be able to operate at a, a corner of a busy street because it's great for business, um, you know you you want there to be some rules uh, about protecting your use of that space. And conversely, you know there might be rules and regulations that apply specifically to that space so that it's preserved for future use. This hearing on space traffic was for a commerce subcommittee. In your mind, is the Commerce Department the right agency to tackle space junk? I believe so. Um, but more than my belief or my own personal opinion, I might point to a study that was done by the federal government in November that also suggested that the Department of Commerce was the right entity to house that office within. Marcus, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Marcus Holzinger is an associate professor at CU Boulder. He testified before a U.S. Senate subcommittee last week about creating rules of the road for space traffic. The state's western slope is considered a climate hotspot where temperatures are increasing faster than the global average. This warming has contributed to more than 20 years of dryness. Scientists call it a mega drought. 
CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke with Western Slope ranchers who are trying to adapt. That means giving up, that might mean giving up ranching altogether. On the side of a dirt road in the southwest county of Gunnison, a herd of cattle are cooling off in the water of an irrigation ditch. Most of the farmland in this county is irrigated, meaning farmers and ranchers flood their crops and pastures with river water. That's all an irrigated hillside that we're looking at up there above us. You know, it's not as bright and as green as you would think just because the ground itself is so parched. That's Doug Washburn, range manager for Span Ranches. Farmers and ranchers started digging this system of trenches and ditches more than 100 years ago, which transformed the landscape. What was once sagebrush and rocks are now meadows of hay and grass. The industry depends on this water to stay alive, but more than 20 years of deep drought means there's less of it these days. My wife and I are raising sixth generation on the ranch. Just in the last 20 years, I can see a very noticeable difference on the amount of water that's available. As Washburn grows hay on his private acres, his cows graze on federal land. Some of the creeks and ponds that irrigate that land are drying up. Year after year of this continued drought, we're seeing places that we didn't think would ever go dry. Uh, A few years ago, we had a creek dry up on the south face of our Red Mountain permit. My father-in-law, Lee Spann, who's now 88, said he'd never seen it go dry in his life. Without water, those cows have to come back to the private ranch, weeks or sometimes months sooner than they're supposed to. And that's a costly issue because those cows need something to eat. The Spans are then forced to use their winter hay supplies early. When that runs out, they have to buy more. Raising cattle in Crested Butte is not the most profitable operation anyway, but if you have to buy feed for them, then it it really doesn't work out too well. Washburn believes in his kid's lifetime. We'll be gone with what we're doing up here, because without this water, we can't keep this land green and we can't keep it open. Andy Spann is part owner of the ranch. He says climate change likely means the ranch won't be able to continue doing business the way it has for six generations. It's really hard with the drought. If we keep having dry winters and dry summers, things are going to change significantly. Spann believes his family can stay in agriculture, but the operation will need to change. Right now, their business is raising and selling calves. That requires a lot of hay to keep mother cows in the winter. Instead, Span says they could just have cattle during the warmer months. Any hay they grow, they could sell for extra income. Or we could just run hay. We could, you know, turn into a horse rancher. You know, there's all sorts of different ways that we can do things. Or the Spans could get out of ranching entirely. My grandfather's thing is, well, this thing in 100 years is going to be a golf course. You know, it could be. Another Gunnison rancher, Bill Parker, says his operation is already successfully adapting to climate change. Parker says he's learned some hard lessons from drought in the past, like in 2012. I had to sell pretty much half my animals at a loss. And those are the kind of experiences that just really stick with you. And, you know, you want, you want to figure out how to avoid that again. If a bad drought year is forecasted, ranchers like Parker won't raise as many animals. That means less profit. But Parker raises grass-finished beef and lamb, which fetch a premium when he sells the meat directly to wholesalers, locally and online. We're direct marketing and trying to catch as much of the retail dollar from the food production as possible. And so that gives us a flexibility of not needing to be fully stocked all the time. Parker also moves his animals to warmer places in the winter so they can keep grazing on grass. That way, he doesn't have to be dependent on a good hay crop. Parker also adopted climate-friendly ranching techniques. Instead of letting his sheep or cattle overgraze one spot, he moves them around using a portable electric fence. 
Parker says it allows him to control the health of his soil. If we're continually grazing it really hard and taking all the plant mass, that soil is going to dry up. But if we keep our soil covered with plants from the year before, that will hold moisture in the soil. Parker could get federal drought insurance and get compensated during dry years, but he doesn't. He says he wants to take responsibility for ranching in the arid west, a burden that's growing heavier as the climate warms. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. There's a hole in the ground just west of downtown Steamboat Springs, and what's inside is now a national natural landmark, recognized by the National Park Service earlier this year. But don't plan to explore it, because it could be deadly. John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people who's been inside what's known as Sulphur Cave. We spoke in February. Tell us why this cave earned the name Sulphur Cave. has to be the stink, the smell of sulfide. You can smell it on the ground all around it when you're approaching it. And it's even stronger when you get inside. So it smells like that strong rotten egg smell. But nobody really should be smelling it because there is a lack of oxygen and that could kill people who go inside, right? That is correct. So the OSHA standard for sulfide is about 10 parts per million. This cave is about 40 times that at 400 parts per million. And at about 80 times that at 800 parts per million, it's lethal. So since I know I am not likely to go inside, can you tell us what more about what it looks like in there? How big is this place? So this cave is amazing. It has 180 feet of surveyed passage, which is, you know, a good size. It has two small rooms that are about 20 feet below the surface. You can go into the first room, and the way we went into it was we ventilated it first. We pumped air down into the cave to toss out the sulfide as well as the CO2 that builds up in there. And there are these two rooms down there, and you can crawl around down inside and see what's there. But the most remarkable thing that we found in there were three things. There are um, three cave features that form in this cave. One of them is a very unique and novel worm that we found down there. Another one are these vermiculations that are kind of on the surfaces and the walls and the ceiling of the cave. They kind of look like overcooked sweet potato french fries, kind of like that dark brown (laughs) color. And then the third thing that's amazing are uh, snotties, otherwise known as snotites. And when I say snotty, I'm talking about like human snot. And you have these snot drips that hang off the ceiling of the cave. And they're gooey and mucousy and kind of disgusting looking. And they're dripping acid, sulfuric acid, into the cave as H2SO4. I love that we can go from talking about vermiculations, which are, it's essentially a surface pattern, a very fancy word for a surface pattern, to snotites. But I want to know more about these worms. Tell me what's fascinating about them. So the worms were a completely unexpected find. Worms are a small animal, of course. And these worms are kind of a blood red brown color and they're living in the water and they're consuming microbes in the form of biofilms that are living on the surfaces of the rocks that the water's flowing over. And that water has a very high concentration of sulfide in it that's off-gassing into the cave, which gives us that, that smell. But the worms are able to detoxify the sulfide while living on trace amounts of oxygen that are also in the water. And so they have this remarkable physiology to do this. And when we found them, we were stunned by what we saw because of, you know, we didn't expect to find these blood red animals uh, in the cave, in the water. And it's kind of along the lines of the things that you find at a, at a, 
submarine hydrothermal vent in the middle of the ocean, just a completely unique kind of life, making a unique kind of living in a very unique place. You're an environmental microbiologist. So what are you learning about the nature of life when you study a place like this, especially when you see worms that you didn't expect to see? So you think you understand the earth and then you go looking and you say, wow, I didn't understand that at all. And this is one of those places where that happened. You know, I look for microbes in unique environments, particularly like subsurface environments, because we think about how things might be relevant to a place like Mars, where life could be in the subsurface of Mars. And that's normally what we do. We're looking for bacteria and archaea, you know, the small single-celled organisms of the world. And then you come down into a place like Sulphur Cave and you find this multicellular worm living there, probably in some sort of a symbiosis that we don't understand with the microbes themselves. You have explored many caves in your work. What about this place is really sticking out to you? It sounds like it looks unusual and it's taught you a lot about life. What else? For me, when I went into this place, the first time I was in this place was 14 years ago. And I still remember it to this day because it's almost like a sensory overload. It's visually arresting for all the things that you see, the vermiculations, the snotties. The smell is overwhelming. Uh, you're uh, crawling around down there, so you're physically touching and feeling it. And all those things really uh, leave an impression for how you learn about an environment, because I think you're using all of your senses to learn that. And I try to take what I learn from places like this and apply it to elsewhere. Why do you think a place like Sulphur Cave deserves to be recognized as a national natural landmark if it's not a place that most people can see or experience? So to me, I think it's really great that this place has been recognized because not only does it mean we're recognizing, uh, you know, a, a truly scenic place that we can all look at for like, for example, Garden of the Gods or Hanging Lake here in Colorado are both national natural landmarks. And so that's something you see and you appreciate the beauty of it. But here we are protecting something that we understand to be beautiful, but it's also dangerous. And I think it's great to have designation for an equally as unique place that you might not be able to access very easily, but we're setting it aside and recognize it for its specialty. The National Natural Landmark Program started, I think, around 1962 when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior. And so, you know, we came up with the National Park Service in 1872 with Yellowstone National Park, and it took us 90 years to start thinking about how special lots of places can be. And this is one of them. How unusual is a cave like this on our planet? To our knowledge, it's very unusual. This is one of the most unique caves in Colorado. It formed by sulfuric acid dissolution of travertine. There are other sulfuric acid formed caves in our country and around the world. But this one's very unique because of what's in it, how it formed, and where it is. And I think that, you know, globally, there are probably a caves or two like this. But as far as one that has a, a worm that's living on sulfide and trace amounts of oxygen, this might be the only one. And that makes it extra special. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people who's been inside Sulphur Cave, which is now a national natural landmark. We spoke in February. Finally today, we remember the legacy of songwriter Chuck E. Weiss. He died last week after a long battle with cancer. He was 76. Weiss grew up in northeast Denver, immersed in music. His parents owned the Record Center on 16th Street. His drumming got the attention of blues singer Lightning Hopkins, who once invited him to sit in for a show in Boulder and then go on tour. (laughs) 
In the 1970s, Chuck E. Weiss relocated to California and became a fixture in the West Hollywood music scene. He was name-checked in Tom Waits' songs and was the subject of a 1979 hit by Ricky Lee Jones. Weiss became an artist-in-residence at the Sunset Strip Jazz Club, known as The Central, a spot he would later purchase with actor Johnny Depp and rename The Viper Room. Chuck E. Weiss released four full-length albums over his career. We'll end the show today with the title track from his 1999 debut album, Extremely Cool. Well, I was a men's room attendant my last life at the Desert Inn Hotel. And I saw some hip cats buy your record over in Minneapolis. I knew you're doing well. Sinatra's men, they had me rubbed out because I opened up my big mouth. <laughs> well, it wouldn't take very long to find out what I'm all about. I got a red Indian with a jet off key that goes into overdrive. And my clothes, they're the serious 40s fabric. Make you feel alive. Remembering Denver native Chuck E. Weiss, who died last week at age 76. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.